Hi and welcome to the Homeopathy Health Show. I'm Atik Ahmad Bhatti, a fourth generation homeopath with over 25 years of professional experience and practice in this field of healing. The Homeopathy Health Show is the online voice of homeopathy around the world, promoting and raising awareness of this truly unique system of healing, which is suitable for all ages, young and old. Every week I invite guests from the world of homeopathy to come and share their experiences, their work, offer insights and essentially talk all things homeopathy. Why not visit www.liketreatslike.co.uk and click on the radio and podcast button to listen to the latest episodes. So let's begin today's show here on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. Hi and welcome to another episode of the Homeopathy Health Show here on UK Health Radio and I'm your host Atik Amadbati. Well I do hope you're well. I've got a splendid episode for you today. My guest is Roger Savage who is a classically trained registered homeopath from the United Kingdom. Now Roger has over 40 years of clinical experience and studied at the School of Homeopathy graduating in 1987. Roger is a classical prescriber but takes great interest in various approaches, including those of Dr. Rajan Sankaran and Dr. Jan Scholten. Roger says in his biography, It is a great joy to see how people are transformed when the right treatment not only removes their physical symptoms, but also helps their general energy and positive approach to life. Roger's speciality is very much on allergies, digestion and headaches, and says that these are such frequent problems these days, they can be hard to resolve. Over the last several years, Roger has been working with Ton Jensen, studying what we now call human chemistry, as a way and means to resolve more complex cases, which can be burdened by toxins of many kinds. Roger says, if they can be relieved, how the sun shines again. Roger Savage, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Homeopathy Health Show. Thank you so much. And it was a great uh, surprise uh, when I got your first message, because I thought, now, what have I done to deserve this honour? So (laughs) during our chat, I hope you'll tell me. Well, I I think (laughs) you have done a great deal, actually, and we are going to talk about that. Just for the uh, listeners, we have been talking uh, via email. We've been exchanging uh, quite a few emails, myself and Roger. And uh, it's always so exciting because it's like a build-up. And uh, finally, you're here. So I'm I'm thrilled and I'm delighted. My pleasure. So I'm wondering what you're going to be asking me today. Uh, Roger, um, I'd be very interested to know about your journey to homeopathy. It's uh, it's quite interesting, and earaches and tonsillitis were the main causations, I suppose, for your uh, introduction to homeopathy. Yes, that's right. I must have been about five or six or seven, and I, I did have quite a lot of tonsillitis, um, and sometimes it would go to earache, and. I remember my mother saying to me that the GP at the time said, I've shot my bolt. I can only now suggest he has his tonsils out. And for some reason, my parents were against that. I don't mean I regret it. I mean, at the time, 
that was an unusual reluctance because many people I knew at school had routinely had tonsils out because there was an idea around in my childhood that there were various organs we don't need. One was tonsils, one spleen, one appendix, and I'm afraid I've forgotten what the fourth one was. Of course, this idea is completely wrong. The tonsils are a filter of particulates, stopping them coming into our system. So my mother must have known somehow about homeopathy, and they investigated and found a medical homeopath not that far from us in central, in North London, and uh, took me there. And interestingly, he saw us out at the end of the session and noticed that I'd wrapped my scarf around my ears. And he said, all right, do it today. But after this, please do not wrap your ears up. You can wear the scarf around the neck, but let your ears be exposed to the air. In old-fashioned language, Attic, this was called developing habits of hardiness. I've often read that expression. Mm. I mean, we have to develop a certain degree of tolerance of different um, sorts of conditions. Now, I don't know what the remedy was. And in those days, homeopaths didn't say. Later, we found another homeopath uh, much nearer to us. And there I was taken because I had a lot of spots on the face, particularly the forehead. And I know that the remedy she gave was called SSC, sulfur, silica and carbovage. Well, it didn't do any good. And I believe that formula is still in use by an older style of classical homeopaths. Uh, seems to me a slightly strange combination. I suppose the idea was she said it would purify the blood. Well, it will if it's the indicated remedy. Hmm. I gradually grew out of those spots, I suppose. Uh, she also advised at the time, drink much less milk, because I was never a tea drinker in childhood and really drank quite a lot of milk a day. So with that advice, Qatar levels dropped. And then, interestingly, Atik, at university, I met a young man who'd actually been to India, um, to Tiruvannamali in the south. And there uh, he'd come across homeopaths. And... He looked at my situation at the time, and I was having a variety of symptoms at the age of about 21. And he said, you need silica. And at that time, I was sleeping very long, missing breakfast, waking up mid-morning, you know, like late teens, early 20s do. And he gave me a silica 200, which was ordered from a pharmacy in London. And immediately I started yawning. And the very next morning, I was awake at half past seven, went into college, met him, and we went into breakfast. And the chef said, good heavens, I must cook you up something special. So that was quite dramatic. A month or two later, I had the most terrible eruptions on the hand, 
especially on the knuckles, uh, with deep, deep cracks. And that by that time, he told me to buy a Burica uh, Materia Medica and Repertory, that little book. And I read through it and thought, I think I match Thuya, because Thuya says cannot eat onions. And that's true for me. So I got myself some Thuya, and I must say it did clear up those knuckles. So these were interesting early experiences. So that's quite a long answer to a simple question, but that is how it started. But let me tell you another remarkable incident. Again, several months later, after I'd finished at university, I again had eruptions on the hands. And there was another homeopath nearby in North London. And I went to see him and he looked at my hand, spoke to me a bit and said, you need hiposulf 6C, take a dose every two hours, no time limit. And I thought that's a bit odd, but all right, I'll do it. Now, after a month or two, the hands weren't really better. And I went back and said, and he said, no, you just carry on. But I was starting to develop severe reactions to sugar. And I thought to myself, I need to antidote this. I'm sure this kind of prescription is not right. And I had an instinct, an intuition, and went and got Heposulf 1M. And I took a dose and I was on the underground going back from one office to another and was suddenly desperate for a bowel movement, but had to hold tight. And then I got on the train and went the wrong way and was even more desperate mm. and eagerly got back, rushed to the office and safety. And with that dramatic clearance, the skin got better and the sugar reaction got better. So I certainly learned about dosage and would say to anybody, a prescription like take this every two hours, no time limit, would only have its place in palliative care. And by palliative, I mean a, a terminal case. It's just not a wise thing to do. Possibly I proved the remedy. It certainly jarred me. And when I went back and told the man this, he said, well, never mind. Look, he said, I've been struck off the medical register. I want to sell this practice. Why don't you buy it? And I was only age 22. And I said, but you've got um, acupuncture patients here. So, well, that's all right. You can deal with them. And I just thought, I can't buy somebody's practice, even though he said, I'll give you easy terms. I don't know enough. I'm too young. I haven't seen anything of life. I wouldn't carry any conviction. I don't have the confidence. So I passed on that one and actually went into teaching of English to foreign students for seven or more years. And then various awful things happened in my life. And I knew it was time to start looking into holistic medicine seriously. And that led me um, through knowing a naturopath in London, led me to the study of radionics, which I did first and went and got qualified 
and then began a very active practice in radionics. But all the time the voice was saying to me, homeopathy, homeopathy. And one day I didn't do the radionic test. I picked up the pad and said, okay, sir, tell me your symptoms. And it was a, an organic process. It just happened. That's that's a very um, I I must say it's it's a, a beautiful symphony of experiences there which you've just released. It's astonishing <laughs> when I come to tell you about it. <laughs> there's so many there's highs there's lows there's in between yes. it's, it's uh, yes a, a variety of notes it's very eloquently said as well I must say. Roger, you said something very interesting which was about dosage. Mm and the importance of dosage because many a time a remedy is indicated through whatever means through experience through repertorization through intuition and the thought comes in your mind which you also have just uh, mm. mentioned in, in one of the examples but the remedy let's say is taken in a 30c or, or a 6c and it doesn't show the desired results even mm. though it is the remedy and even though a, a practitioner knows it must be that it has to be this what's your advice as far as dosage and potencies are concerned i said we should only do that kind of rapid repetition in a in a terminal case i must revise that statement and say we should only do it if the symptoms demand it now that might be in a fast moving and very unpleasant unbearable acute when one may need to do that to keep the person comfortable which may not be terminal at all but to do endless repetitions in a non-urgent case that is what i meant is bad prescribing now rajan sankaran once came out with a statement with his usual wicked grin if the indicated remedy fails it isn't the indicated remedy Hmm. But there is another way of looking at it. There may be obstacles to cure, which Hahnemann wrote so much about. And this is where something we can talk about a bit later, using the human chemistry method comes in, because we may need to investigate if we're sure that that remedy matches all symptoms. Two or three different rep repertories say so, two or three homeopaths reviewing the person say so and yet it doesn't work what have we missed or are there obstacles is there a history of heavy drugging of other sorts of influences that are not allowing this apparently indicated remedy to work so we then have to have our strategies but if a person doesn't have any detectable obstacles we may need to think now, maybe this person is sensitive to the right potency. Now, if I gave a 30 and it didn't really work, if the condition is more physical, perhaps I should give it lower. If the condition has more aspects, including mental, emotional, I may need to go higher. So we have to keep an open mind and not just do what we've always done. Now, there's the ordinary centesimal scale. 
there's the LM scale, the 50 millesimal. We even, if it looks as though it's necessary, can use these not very well-known C4, C5, C6 scale potencies where they are triturated one, two, or three more steps. And it makes a big difference to the action of the remedy because it opens the molecules out more. It releases another kind of energy. They're not widely known. They are not readily available. But I just mention it in case anybody, for example, is dealing with a deeply embedded case um, which has echoed down several generations or affects the person in their community and the apparently indicated remedy isn't scoring, one may have to look at it um, in a slightly different way. That's fascinating. And and uh, if anyone is actually interested in what you've just said and wants to know more, reference the C4, C5 mm. remedies, where, where would they go for, for more information and knowledge? There is a book that's been written about them. And... Uh, Ton Janssen said, I need to take acetylcholine because I forget things. Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that helps us with the memory function. I haven't yet gone on a course of it, and I, I should. I will have to think who that book is by and let people know so that you can put it in the notes that follow this broadcast. The Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Um there will be one or two of them in Helios. There are one or two special ones in stellar homeopathics. Um, Nelson in England, I don't think will have. Ainsworth may or may not, but probably not. More or less what they buy in. The problem is a lot of bench space is needed for the additional processing. Hmm. Hanum and Apotheke in the Netherlands have one or two, but are not going into major production for that reason. There is a pharmacy called Remedia, which may be Belgian, uh, who I think have them. But often people then have to, to make them themselves, you know, in, in working groups, in experiential remedy making, potency groups, hmm. you know, get together, sit around the table with their pestle and water and make them. And then that effect is a kind of uh, what's the word I want? Trituration proving. Because you will inevitably inhale and absorb some of the energies while working with the remedy. And then you note what you experience at each step. Fascinating. So it moves one into another dimension, which I have done a tiny bit of, but not for some time. It it also, it's. I mean, it's a big resounding yes also to the the sheer um, uh, um miracle of homeopathy yes it's so so broad and so versatile it can be as broad as you want it to be it can be as versatile as one wants it to be it's incredible isn't it the healing potentials that we perhaps haven't even tapped into yet yes yes i may um, absolutely yeah there is so much and then people say why do we need more remedies haven't we got enough already well, we have a lot, and in investigating new ones, we shouldn't forget the, those that have been known for ages, because I often say 
How many people regularly give oleander as a remedy? And that is in Hahnemann's Materia Medica Pura. Not that often. It's just one example. Many of the Indian homeopaths, the Indian classical homeopaths, are familiar with the old remedies as well. Some of us tend to forget while investigating new ones. We need both. I, I absolutely agree with you. And also, I found personally that, um, as you know, Julian mentioned in his uh, Materia Medica about a remedy called Okubaka. Oh, yes. And that's that's a really great remedy. As an example, I mean, personally, I, I like using it, but uh, it's such a good, great remedy. And, and he himself has written, it sits between arsenicum and uh, naxvomica. So it's in between. Um, oh, right. That is one I have tended to forget. Um, I think I must look it up again and bring it back into use. It's it's a really effective remedy. I mean, it's it's good for multiple things. So, yeah, that's, I mean, what you've just said is that there's so many old and even forgotten remedies. Mm. And uh, it's very true. I found that um, doctors from India are very much into using the old forgotten and rare remedies. Mm. Old meaning as in people just have forgotten them, let's say. They're yeah. not old as in old, because then they're all old, right? Yeah, all the remedies. Right. But I know what you mean. We it's, know. It's, it's interesting, because they actually, sometimes I found they work better than the common ones, because maybe the common ones are so common. <laughs> yes, 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 that's right. There is a danger to think in terms of, what do they say, 30 polocrests and four nosodes, and mm. you can do all your work in that. Well, some people can do very well. But what is interesting when one repertorizes is to see if a little-known remedy comes high up. And Jans Scholten pointed out the truly indicated remedy may be number 10, 15, or 20 in the list as one looks along because there won't be so much evidence for them in the Materia Medica. Mm. But there may be one or two crucial points that make but, the dominant choice. That's very true, and and I'll give that example of uh, Okubaka again. It's it it doesn't show up. It doesn't show up at no. all. Actually, I've I, I've never seen it show up. But no. uh, it's you just got you have to use it, of course, for for its indications, um, like so many other remedies. You know. Yeah. So there is a homeopath in England who's talk is often called beyond the repertory because what we need may not be in the repertory writers have strict criteria and they want uh, written um, evidence of, of, of these remedies so they're looking for written literature and often that doesn't exist at that point particularly so they don't go in because there's no um, corroboration and yet many practitioners will know, I know that that will work in that case. So I just use it anyway. And That's if I'm in that mood, I put symptoms into the repertory and see, you know, I wonder what's going to show up. Oh, right. And I often have to say to a patient, look, the symptoms you're suffering are very vivid to you and very unpleasant to you. But for homeopathy, I'm afraid they're very general. And at the moment, I've got a hundred remedy choices. Now, look, we need to look a bit more and find something that makes your situation stand out. Hmm. 
and that's that's a skill isn't it that really yeah. is something you you learn i i relayed to somebody uh on a previous podcast recently that when i started out a very good friend of mine who's a homeopath they said to me that uh, a ticket's going to take you at least 10 years before you actually know what you're doing yeah and that was so true yeah and and to be honest perhaps i still don't know what i'm doing but you know the 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 learning curve is it's it's a it's a lifetime commitment to healing it's yeah. not just you've done a four year course or diploma or what, whatever it is and uh, off you go yeah the experiences are so different the observations are so different to reading them in a book it's a totally different dynamic yes 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 absolutely and every situation is individual every situation is new as kent said it may look like something else but it is not the same as something or somebody else mm, absolutely um i'm really enjoying this conversation by the way so it's really, i think we really... i think we're doing nicely <laughs> now i want to go back slightly um to post university and you said that you went into teaching mm. and uh, this was to foreign students Mm. I is this when you picked up some of the languages because just before this recording we were you were conversing with me in Punjabi and Hindi which is uh, amazing and uh, we will share that of course after this podcast there are going to be some videos just so you know uh, I think that's just I can't wait to record those actually but um, how how did that go about then how did your interest uh, come it, about there it wasn't in the language schools that i got a little flavor of hindi and punjabi i i know in the indian community so many people so i drew it from them but in the school uh in a class of 15 or 18 people there might be a french person a german or two uh scandinavian uh spanish uh portuguese and south american which can mean either brazilian or one of the spanish speaking countries um in those days persia iran which i should imagine doesn't figure now uh we didn't have russians nor did we have what were then called iron curtain countries because that blockade was still there um and we had a lot of arabs but i didn't mix with them mostly so didn't really Uh, pick up any arabic oh and i shouldn't forget italians because they were always so full of life so naturally one picked up snatches of phrases from them and actually towards the end of my time in the teaching when i was beginning to feel look it's time i've got to make this change i started to find one or two of the students themselves were keen on homeopathy so we would have little discussions um one had an awful cough and i said have you taken bryony she said no my mother says it should probably be rumex and i said oh thinking i don't know rumex i must look it up right so her mother was at that point a much better home prescriber uh, than i was but i hadn't had any training at that point mm. so slowly gradually the emphasis changed and so the career changed which then led you actually to the school of homeopathy in devon yes yes it did it did um originally mission all and lived in london 
and I was going to run a course with him in Cambridge. That was all set up. And then he got the opportunity, found this property in Devon. So he moved. There were other people who wanted to do the course in Cambridge with me and for me, but I didn't feel it was going to gel with them. So I didn't do it. And instead, for four years, I had to trot up and down between Cambridge and Saffron Walden and, and Devon. But we had a good training there. How, how was that? Uh, I know that um, you'll be interested to know Manny Norland uh, has been on the show. Oh, good. Uh, it's, uh, it's a beautiful place to study, isn't it? Now, he is in uh, somewhere in Stroud. Yes. They have moved. I went to Mission Orland in central Devon at his homestead. After all, when I was training, Manny uh, was only 10, 12, 13, 14, hmm. and wasn't there all the time. Uh, now, of course, he's a, um, the driving force of the school and his brother as well doing the radar program. So they've been well soaked in homeopathy, well absorbed in it. And then he's running it at this place in Stroud. I haven't been there, but it looks quite something. It, it, it is quite magical, yes. But it's no longer in their own house. So, um, yeah, that was interesting, uh, going down to Misha's. And once that was finished, I had quite a break from long distance traveling. I mean, that was tiring doing all that traveling. Now I do all my um, work online. I don't go out to clinics. I've got the excuse of age and the corona epidemic was a good alibi and I've kept it. How do you find that though, Roger? Is online um, Absolutely just fine. as effective as, as... Yes, yes. Most people are happy with it. If they say, look, I want somebody face to face. Okay. All right. Where are you? Yes. Well, you could try this person, try, uh, try that person, see if they can take you. But most people are fine with it because also then they don't have to travel. It's a huge benefit, isn't it? And uh, nearly every homeopath I've, I've had on the show so far has said the same thing that since post pandemic, it has made life, uh, it's streamlined the consultation process more, which is a positive. It's a, in a, yeah. I mean this in a, as a plus point that yes. makes it easy. There's a, there's no time uh, for traveling. There's the cost element of traveling, of course. Um, there's also the anxiety. There's always an anxiety when you're going for a consultation and sitting in your own home makes it so much easier. And, and through technology, yeah. it just, it, you can actually have a more productive conversation I found because you have to concentrate more. When someone's in front of you, it's just, uh, it's a different shift, isn't it? Well, it is. Now, I'd already started doing a lot of online before the corona days, but that sealed it and no longer would anybody uh, comment. But you raised a point, does it work? Actually, this will tie in with the human chemistry discussion because if I'm seeing you like this, and you tell me you have this, that, or the other condition. Something that I didn't generally do before, but under the encouragement of human chemistry training I now would do, is say, have you got any test results? And if not, I would say, could you go along, please, and get a blood test? Because 
anybody might think, how can I know what your condition is? How can I know that I'm treating you safely and completely if I can't see you, can't feel you, can't be shown face to face what in the body is bothering you? Well, so we take the help of the test. Or say, look, what, what did the GP say about it? Okay, they're quite satisfied. The tests don't show. Oh, the test does show. Right, thank you. That gives me a really good starting point. I wouldn't have known that just by looking at you. You wouldn't have known it, but the test shows it. Thank you. Particularly, this is the case if there is a hormone or neurotransmitter imbalance. The tests can show this, and this helps guide our treatment. And it also leads to our taking a very careful case history. Actually, I didn't always ask all those details. I didn't always say, um, what vaccination, what's your vaccination history? What is your uh, drugging history? If you came along with a really clear symptom picture, I treated it. And most of the time I got the result. But I now know that it is important to ask that. But then equally, by one of the ironies of synchronicity, if you like, now that we have the training to enable us to deal with these more difficult situations, we tend to draw those more complex patients. Mm. Interesting, isn't it, how that Order works? of affinity, yes. Yes. Now, I'm talking far too much, and we're nearly out of time, I think. So anything else you'd like to ask? Uh, yes. I think in part two, we'll talk more about human chemistry, don't you? Because that'll be a whole other... Discussion. I think, yeah, I think we should um, schedule part two, certainly, you know. Yes. Roger, I was going to ask you something, um, which is to do with overall health and whether there is a ground zero, because we're all born in different shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. Our psyches are very different. The way we think is very different. So when treating a patient who is unwell, where is that ground zero? Is it before they became sick? Or if I can have a very, uh, from a very philosophical point of view, one could argue that there is no ground zero because of the way that we are and our habits and mannerisms and the way we speak and our likes and dislikes, that there is always going to be ailments present. But we have to start from somewhere, right? I like George Vitulkas's definition of the aim, which is that we should have freedom from limitations caused by health problems, limitations to doing what we would reasonably like to do or be in life. Hmm. So this does presuppose we're talking of good aspirations, not thoroughly unsavory ones but that if we want to be this want to travel there want to uh, follow this line of career or something we shouldn't be hampered by nagging health problems now in this physical world we are unlikely to be perfect in fact we cannot be perfect but we should be good enough that we are not having to think about our breathing, our digestion, our this or that. 
um, on a regular basis. So it's what everybody would know their own baseline, what you're calling ground zero. Hmm. So you look at somebody and suppose over 20 years they've hardly changed. Well, they are fundamentally healthy. And then there's the difference between indisposition, which is a minor ill, which will probably resolve itself quickly. There are acute illnesses, there are subacute, and then there are the chronic things. And as you know, George Little has placed a lot of emphasis on the chronic because they do not get better without dynamic remedies. Mm. They will destroy us. Now, look, we are all going to leave this body and this world. Our cure will not make us immortal. But we aim to be just as good as we can be without constantly relying on props and medication and so on. That's very beautifully said, actually. Mm. Mm, thank you. It's very, very, very nice. I, uh, when you were saying that, I was, uh, I, w I was in a nice space there, actually, for a moment. I forgot where oh, we good. were. <laughs> oh, good. So back, back to the show. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I'm back. I'm back. Um, now you've done a lot of work uh, with Ton Jensen, uh, mm. and we are going to. You're coming back very very soon and we're going yeah. to talk a lot about that as far as uh, human that, chemistry yeah. is concerned and mm. uh, and so forth but uh, with your wealth of experience um it's also nice to see that you do have a good um time you have a you have a good opportunity to relax which i think is important for any practitioner mm. and i don't mean relax as in sitting on a chair i mean relax as in something that uh, relaxes you as an individual and and that includes uh walking as much as yeah. you can and also um you know taking uh breaks perhaps in scenic places that's right that's right so we do that uh, twice a year for a good stretch so to move from the working environment to being where we have water and fresh air and hills and just that opportunity to be out if it isn't pouring with rain or something else awful um, does a great deal to boost us. It's so important, isn't it? It's yeah. so important to recharge one's own batteries. Yes, yes. I've yes. always found that with the beauty of nature, uh, you know, the beautiful greens and the, even the autumn colours and and the myriad of, uh, you know, flora and, and such beauty, taking walks in, in places i mean i know you mentioned the lake district to me and that's right that's it's where such a stunning stunning yeah. place it really brings yeah. you back to grounding oneself isn't it well both grounding and floating if you like mm. up a up a high fell side with that view and quiet basically and yes the blues the greens it's wonderful rock. isn't it yes it, it's it's a different rock underneath so one's on a different a different vibration of the terrain even hmm that's very very true and 
I think I've always found, Roger, that going to places which are very undisturbed and very natural really has a positive impact on health. And I, and I you know, it may be the, someone is thinking, we know that. But really, we may know that, but how many of us actually try to make an effort to experience that? That's, mm-hmm. that's the important thing. Yeah, uh, it's one thing. It's like saying reading a remedy in a materia medica, but then actually experiencing that remedy work on on healing a patient. It's yes. worlds apart, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. So as for the relaxation, in our next conversation, if uh, along with human chemistry, um, we must talk about um, the healthy eating basis of life, as it were, the naturopathic or uh, natural healing uh, link. Because certainly when I began in homeopathy, many of them didn't have any of that background and thought all you did was just give potentized remedies and found me very strange. That uh, I would say we should give our remedy against um, a naturopathically healthy background or a balanced background. So we can talk about diet and um, uh, keeping that good life balance. So it's not just take this pill, everything will be fine. It's 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 bigger than that. That's very Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That was wasn't it? That was that take take that bubble gum and and or or the chocolate bar and but it's it's not like that. Um, health that that was a light hearted. Uh, of course, but of course, the health it requires a lot of commitment and it and of mm. course it requires willpower. You cannot just anyone myself included we cannot just pass um our worries about health to somebody else to manage uh, the inner force the vital force the inner drive the wisdom that we all have each of us has this is needed and some sometimes it could be willpower sometimes it could be a change of scenery sometimes it could be um moving away from perhaps people you feel are toxic there's so many um situations isn't it that we all find ourselves in 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 a day i i always say to 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 friends and family i say at the start of uh, the start of the day you don't know what's lying ahead and it's like um when you open the door you'll open the door and it'll be raining and you close the door and you you, you feel safe at home and then you'll open the door and it's snowing or, and you close the door again or then it's something else you know and that's how a day can go. It can go up, down, it can stay down, it can go very, very high and then plateau. And uh, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because one has to somehow find that middle ground Yeah. Uh, to remain somewhat composed, I yeah. suppose, if we want to have a better yeah. word. Yes, it's that balance. Mm. It's that balance. Yes, absolutely. Um, Roger, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, I really really enjoyed our conversation and uh, in part two uh, we will talk about human chemistry your work with Tony Jansen and of course some more of your insights and experiences I shall look forward to that and thank you Atik for inviting me I hope um, people find some interest here it's been a great honor to have you on thank you so much thank you I do hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of the homeopathy health show Please do support the show by clicking follow on my socials. 
Remember, the more exposure the podcast receives, the better for homeopathy around the world. You can find me on Instagram by searching for at like underscore treats like and on both Facebook and TikTok by searching for at like treats like. So let's promote the voice of homeopathy on radio and podcast around the world together. Don't forget to visit me online at www.liketreatslike.co.uk and click on the radio and podcast tab. Here you'll be able to see all the guests that have joined me on the show so far. And of course, you can stream on demand the latest episode to your mobile, tablet or PC. Until next time, stay safe and take care.